Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. Two zero six eight four two three six two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is Eric Lindbergh. How are you doing this morning, Eric? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Tim? Real, real, real well. It was good to uh, chat with you and have a walkabout before we came in the, into Studio 15 today. Um, Lindbergh, strong, strong name. Do you ever feel like you're living in the shadows of a uh, great author and podcaster, of Lynn Lindbergh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lynn is my secret weapon. I mean, she she is a velvet hammer that can get things done and and um, incredibly creative, yet way more organized than me. So, yeah, having a wife who can um, who can blaze a trail 
is uh, it's awesome. It's empowering. That's nice. Yeah. Couch and to couch to fit out there. Couch to active and, and couch to active. You know she um, she's helped me in some ways with my like my body because I'm old. And um, I don't think you can use that word because we're we're the same age. And I don't feel that way. <laughs> well, I have a lot of artificial parts and uh, parts that aren't working properly, and and have had a lot of carpentry done on my body. And I always feel like I'm just kind of one little step away from, um, you know, crashing. Like my parts are kind of all operating loosely in formation right now because I work at it and I kind of have to. It's like yeah. if I don't, I start hurting and then I can't go do things. And You've had a long history with arthritis and and you're coming from an athletic background and having both knees replaced. What does is, what is that sur- surgery look like when you're 20 years old? Did they have the same type of technique that they do now where they butterfly the quadricep and put the, the replacement knee in there and take it out in 10 years or something like that? Yeah, you know, I think they're getting better and better at it. Um, Was that so long ago they were still using wood or something back then? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I just I, – I grew up with this incredible physical sense of self, Right. Um, I was Washington State champion gymnast when I was 11, 12 years old, went to regionals. Um, I had boxes full of water ski trophies. Um, anything I wanted to do, I could do it pretty easily. And if I wanted to compete, I just practiced a little bit or not and went and competed and usually did well. And so having that sort of death of being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at age 21 and slowly losing my my mobility and um, my ability to just basically walk and work and be, um, you know, normal human being, mm-hmm. if you will, was um, incredibly tough on my sense of self. I died, if you will, a physical death. Um, so getting another chance at life, walking with total knee replacements, titanium and plastic, and I have 10-inch scars on the fronts of my, right down across my kneecaps. Um, I met... I'm throwing up in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was at a, an event, an aviation event in, I don't know, Maryland or somewhere, and I met John Nordstrom, you know, from mm-hmm. Nordstrom's, and he's a local, and uh, asked me if I wanted to go, go up in his float plane um his his beaver on floats that he has in over on Lake Washington. Anyway, we got talking and we just we both have knee replacements. And then we pulled up our pants cuz he told he was like I've got this tiny scar. And he had just had his knees done. Mine were like 10 years old mm-hmm. at that point. They're 20 20 plus years old now. Um let's get that mic a little closer to. You. We pulled up our pants and people in the event were looking at us like what are they talking about? And showing off, comparing our scars. Um, so it was kind of a funny aside. And, of course, now they're doing these tiny incisions, which is less scar tissue and, um, you know, less trauma to fix your knees. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. It beats amputation, like back in the day, right? Yeah. Yeah, and- or living in a wheelchair. I mean, it, yeah. you know, I think I had reached a point where 
I guess if we were Neanderthals, I would be dead. They would have left me out for the saber-toothed tigers. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, I would have been in a, a wheelchair and had, um, you know, a difficult life moving around, et cetera. And, um, you know, 20, 24 years ago, I had my knees replaced in, um, is that it? 1996? Is my math about right? 23 years ago. We don't fact check. Okay, good. <laughs> now, that's, I went that, to Bainbridge High School. I, uh, my math is no good. Uh, I, I doubt that. They do a good job, and you're a pretty it, smart guy. Anyway, it's it's extraordinary to get a second chance at life, and you know that that was an incredible turning point for me. I don't know if I'll get a third chance, so it's kind of allowed me to push through my personal barriers and um, and really push in life. Now, RA is a genetic situation. Yeah, it can be, and uh, nobody else in my family has it. But so um, do you think it was just wear and tear from gymnastics and water skiing and snow skiing? And no, that would be osteoarthritis, which is wear and tear. The rheumatoid is it can be genetic, but it's more it's like inflammation. I would feel like my knee was was sprained, but then my other knee would swell up and act like it was fluid. sprained. So it kind of mirrors itself in the body. A lot of fluid. And that inflammation is when it's causing damage. But it took, you know, 10 years of that flaring, they call it, where it gets worse and then it gets better, um, you know, to really destroy all the cartilage in my knees and need to have them replaced. I was bone on bone, so yeah. I couldn't really walk. How do you manage um, inflammation now nowadays? Do you do, like, hot steams or yeah, are you on um, statins or... No, you know, I don't get a lot of inflammation. I, I take a breakthrough biotechnology drug and... What's that? Uh, Enbrel. Enbrel? Enbrel. It was, it was discovered by a company called Immunex in Seattle, actually, and um, they sold out to Amgen, I think, now. Um, but I still take Amgen it. Amgen went under, right? No, they're, they're a mega pharmaceutical company. Oh, are they? Yeah. I was thinking the biotech down in Ballard, Amgen? It was Immunex. Immunex, okay. And they sold to Amgen for a lot of money. Gotcha. It was very successful. So you're original Bainbridge Islander. At what point did you first come to the island? <laughs> Two weeks old. Wow. 1965, yeah. Where were you born? Santa Barbara. So I'm one of those Californians. That I think we can here. give you a pass since we're only there <laughs> two weeks. What brought your parents up here? Uh, my dad started a salmon farming operation in in uh, called Domsey Farms, kind of uh, south end of the island and, and in uh, Manchester, so across the water. Okay. And he used to commute to work by boat. So he'd fire up the little 15-horse motor in the dinghy. And, uh, what did farm fishing look like back then? I think net pens. Okay. So net pens with salmon and... and um, you know, it's interesting that sort of how that's evolved, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and maybe it's not such a good thing uh, for our environment. It's it's food, and I think it's valuable, and I think ocean farming may have a place in feeding a lot of people, but it's it's something we have to look at for the environment because it, you know, obviously if those fish get loose and uh, threaten which they have uh, Atlantic uh, salmon that were yeah. on the pins. Oh yeah, that's a horrible idea. I think, yeah, these are areas where 
we need to be really careful messing with the environment. And the species, too. I mean, the the farmed salmon now are in these pens, and they're just living among their own feces. And then the density of the nutrients of the fish not getting a variety of um, sources to eat has really changed the DNA of the fish completely. And I think it's an unhealthy type of fish to eat. I personally try to avoid it, but sourcing fish is difficult. And then we also have the how can we produce salmon for the orcas, too, to replenish what we're taking? Right. It's a yeah. tr- tricky question. I don't know the science behind it, but I just personally don't like the taste of farmed fish. It doesn't taste right. It doesn't taste the same. And that's a personal you know, preference, I guess, for wild fish. Um, but, you know, I think um, <laughs> the problem may not be fish farming it may be more that there's too many humans on the planet we're displacing all the vertebrate mass on the planet and and that's you know it's just not sustainable <laughs> i should have you in with good space guy do you know who that guy is uh, i don't know he ran for u.s senate he ran against dow constantine too and he's talking about colonizing the sweet spot between the sun and the earth the goldilocks area or whatever but he brought up the point there should be a birth tax, and you should have a have to pay thousands of dollars to have a license to give birth. In Interesting. America. Wow. And yeah, that, I don't know about that either. That was that was his idea. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, so, he he's trying to address a real issue, and I think you know, there's lots of politics and ethics and morals around humans, but what humans are doing is consuming resources faster than anything else on the planet and um and displacing that that mass if you will the the green biomass and the vertebrate mass and you don't have to extrapolate very far to realize that we either need to find other habitable planets um to expand or somehow become more sustainable clean up our act quick well i mean i don't know can we do it maybe not maybe maybe we're just meant to go the way the dinosaurs i I think we're headed that way in a lot of ways anyway we didn't get here to go doom (laughs) and gloom on everybody pretty deep Uh, (laughs) two weeks old how long how long did it take till you started fishing and enjoying the outdoors here on bainbridge island did you grow up a fisherman at all uh, yeah, uh, you know, I did, the bug caught my brother more than me, mm-hmm. um, but I grew up building forts in the woods and um, digging, climbing trees, et cetera, being an observer of wildlife. And, um, you know, I still think this island has amazing biodiversity, even though it is an island. Um, I just got back from Germany from a, a trade show, and, um, you know, those established countries that have had human civilization longer they just they have more invasives they have more agriculture that's monoculture like espaliate apple trees and forests that were planted and they're perfectly straight and tall and spaced and everything it's it's kind of weird you know i love coming back and having that proliferation of growth that we have here it's pretty extraordinary even though you know my property has got Himalayan blackberries and English ivy and all these things competing 
um, at least we still have a lot of things competing. What, what are the major change, changes you've seen since childhood on the island? Um, well, I mean, I think the community's changed dramatically. It's an incredibly expensive for people to live here. And I, I considered myself a refugee from Bainbridge. Of course, after high school, I wanted to move away, go to college, et cetera. I kept bouncing back. Then when I wanted to buy property, I was kind of priced out on the market. Um, so I went and lived up in Indianola, bought a you know nice piece of property, built a house, um, and kind of found a community that felt like Bainbridge used to be up there. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was amazing. Lived there for 14 years and... Um, you know, just people are a little bit more relaxed. If you want to go to Indianola, you kind of have to go there to get there. You're not driving through from somewhere else. Um, and it was beautiful, and now it's been discovered, mm-hmm. and its prices have gone up. And, and I ended up getting divorced and coming back to Bainbridge. And, it's you know, this place is amazing, wonderful, supportive community, and it's got some – downsides it's got a lot of really you know hyper intelligent hyper active <laughs> uh, people advocating for their positions and you, you know that's kind of crazy sometimes look at the Bainbridge Islander Facebook page and um, I'm a strong con- contributor there yeah it's fun it's entertaining it's a, a little bit dysfunctional and in and can be really destructive I like it when somebody po- po- poses an intelligent question it makes you kind of think and you get two sides of the coin and then you really start to see the fractured community like I, they're really swinging this way or really swinging that way and i'm i'm one that likes to seek out information gather information so it's not always the best source of my information yeah right but now i think uh kobe city of bainbridge island and um city council have started to put out a new newsletter and trying to you know, counter that a bit with factual information. And it's tough when you have a local newspaper and they kind of sensationalize whatever it is. Like, hey, it's opening weekend of Little League Baseball. Everybody come out to the Parks Department. God bless the Rotary. You know, it's not as hard-hitting as this is what's happening in my community deep down. And you see these surface-level conversations about homelessness and... um council issues and it, it gets pretty nasty right right I, I would just like everybody to just come together and have a conversation and be all right with differences of opinions well i think you know um i think the <laughs> my personal sort of um response to some of that trauma drama <laughs> polarization is that it's the Russians that are controlling you, <laughs> you know? Gotcha. They've been seeding sows of, uh, sowing seeds of doubt for 30 years, which is polarizing our debates and, and, and making it so that we can't listen to each other and learn and understand and, and really hear a, a, an opposing opinion and think, oh, there's some merit to that. I don't really buy into it whole hog, but at least I'm able to hear and listen and sort of cogitate on it and maybe move my own position. But, man, the state of politics in the United States, is it echoes Bainbridge in that it, it, it is highly polarized and more so than any time I've ever known. Um, and now we realize why. It's because there are forces out there that are 
they're pushing us, they're probing us, and they're they're doing it in very subtle ways, and we're picking it up and running with it, you know, uh, unsheathed, if you will, to to stab and slash and burn and. You know, I don't think that makes us a stronger country. That makes us a weaker country. Hundreds and hundreds of years passes, pass, and mistakes are made. But how often do we learn from those mistakes? Last uh, podcast, I had the actors from A Walk in the Woods from the Indie Theater in here. And that play opened last night, and that was about um, arms negotiators walking into the woods coming to a cease of weapons and saying that we, we need to de-arm and start being civil and work together. And it was basically the talks from the 80s between Russia and America and saying that, hey, we got to stop this, go, 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 militarize everything and, and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they came to the agreement, took that back to their leaders, and the leader said no. And we're in that situation again where – we're constantly selling the fear of Russia. And we have this internet thing and, and the news is constant. And it seems like the people that are succeeding financially are the ones that are selling fear. And Alex Jones blew up, became really, really um, rich selling fear. You, you look at the island, there's earthquake preparedness gatherings, you know, almost weekly, where it's always doom and gloom. I'd like to get to the point where, hey, I'm on the island, I'm at the farmer's market, music's playing, birds are chirping, this is a joyous moment, you know? And I'd love to have that paradigm flip to say, hey, where can we find joy as opposed to, hey, let's talk about all this pain and suffering. And it's going to be nutty times, and it's, it's tough as a father to navigate that you know, because all the clickbait, the sound bites, the one sentence conversations that the kids pick up on, whether it be on the radio, YouTube, TV, some other kid that they're talking to, it's a tough place to navigate. Yeah, well, I think students today have higher stress levels than than ever, um, and we can also. So, so where does that go? Where does that take us? And I think um, for me, you know. Um, Life is hard. Life is really intense, and it it um, it'll destroy you if you let it. Um, you know, one of the things that's helped me is to sort of adopt some of these little platitudes, like "it's all good." I say that. I say no worries. You know, and I think when you when you articulate that in your life, you start to believe it a little bit. And positive it, reinforcement to and yourself. It, and it makes it a little bit easier, right? And you come from a more of a positive place. So if you practice being that way, you can become more that way. And so for my life, yeah, I try not to get too involved in in the day-to-day politics and look more long range and try not to listen to the news too much because it's all bad news. It's not really, um, it's not really monetarily worthwhile for people to, to have good news channels, et cetera. So there's less of Mm -hmm. it in our lives, but my friend Peter Diamandis wrote a book called abundance and it's all about, 
um, historically now we're in a time of better abundance than ever any time in history. Um, there's fewer wars. We do now have, since he published the book, more sort of mass migrations of humans, which is a real hardship. But but um, there's more money available. There's more information available to the whole planet through the Internet. Um, disease is better, et cetera. So there's all these things, and yet we feel more stressed and more tense and more polarized than ever. So what's the reality? And I think the reality is that you make your a certain amount of your own reality. And you can gravitate towards abundance or negativity, polarization, fear, politics of fear. Um, but you get to choose. And it's unfortunate that so many people just follow the fear. Um, and because that's a form of mani- you know, manipulation. Have you ever had – tell me your mo- most fearful moment. Like, were you ever in a plane where you're just like, oh, this doesn't <laughs> seem right? Or, well, there, you know, I think um, that that makes me ask, what kind of fear? Physical fear, or sort of, you know, fear of self, my sense of self. Mm. So I've got, I've had a, you know, few moments where I thought maybe I was going to die. That was this instant freak out fear. Um, Sailing through the air, realizing I could die, and I ended up breaking my hip. But you know, I'm I'm fine now. Um, that was incredible fear. Um, then there's more of a deeper seated fear of I've got icing building up on my wing, and I'm flying over the Cascades, trying to fly from from Bremerton to Bend, Oregon, and uh, you know I'm in the clouds. The icing is building up rapidly. I've never seen it build up that fast and that destroys the lift over the wing so at some point the plane isn't going to fly and I'm wondering you know am I going to get out of this alive that was a longer period of time deep stress I got myself into that situation that was an incredible fear but you know maybe the then there's this sort of existential fear where I you know I grew up being very physical and I went I had I can't do this now. Well, obviously, I, I, I was having a hard time walking, just walking, much less being, you know, an active guy who could help someone move a piano. Um, I went to the Mayo Clinic. My dad said, you need to go get, a, like, the best doctor you can, and he helped pay for that. And I went, and the guy, you know, they put me through this battery of tests, and the the, the, the guy finally said, okay – here's what, you're going to have to have your knees replaced. And that was this incredible low point for me and a death of that earlier sense of self. And that was like, I had the most fear. That was really the lowest point I've ever been mentally. And I broke. I cried. I was in this dingy motel, the only thing I could afford. And there was you know, brown spots on the carpet and on the ceiling, something had dripped and there was a radiator that was just, it was just this dingy place. And my life was reduced to this dingy moment of realization of, man, I, I don't have a life. And what does it mean I have to replace my knees? And, you know, in hindsight, who was I kidding? I couldn't walk. I was walking with a cane and I destroyed my wrist putting so much pressure on the cane. I shouldn't have been doing that for so long. That was sort of the biggest 
and that age too, you must be going through all these like hormonal changes too, and and just growing up, and then couple that with knowing something for so long, like athletics, and then coming to a point where you no longer walk. That's got to be really, really hard to take. As a as a young athletic male, yeah, all my friends were out doing stuff, and I, you know, oh, let's go party and dance you know there's girls well no i can't because i can't dance Somebody, i can't go out i can't walk between the car and the restaurant kind of thing it was a that was a devastating period of my life between my you know sort of mid-20s and mid-30s and i had my knees replaced i got a little bit more mobility in my life and I, you know, had some screws put in my foot, and then I uh, was supposed to have more put in my other foot to to just sort of latch the bones together so they didn't rub and hurt. And um, and then I started taking this breakthrough biotechnology drug, and it gave me another chance. I slowly start building a physical life again, and who knows they're going to get a chance like that. Um, you suffer from depression during that time at all? Um. Yes, although generally not. I'm a pretty much an optimist. Lucky to come out that way, I guess. Um, I always kind of felt like maybe I could do something, right? Um, and you've re- but it was hard. You've recreated yourself a few times, right? And, I, and I'm trying to recreate myself too after you know 18 years of being in a certain career, and then taking time off, and then not having an identity linked to that career. And then taking on a new adventure in, in podcasting, just basically like I was saying before we got on air, it's a, it's a personal growth for me. It's it's me trying to get over struggling with conversations and communication with people. And I wanted to work on, work on that and was prideful about it. So now I'm trying to recreate my identity in my 50s. And it, it's, it's tough. <laughs> I mean, at least you were, you know, young – when you started uh, changing your identity from gymnastics and uh, well, athletics into other stuff, you, you know, I think it's 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 uh, like Joseph Campbell mythology. It's a hero's journey, and we all face it at one time or another. If we haven't faced it yet, we're gonna, and and sometimes multiple times in our lives because we don't have a lot of control over the external things that happen. We do have control over how we sort of take those next steps. And as you do that a time or two, you get better at moving through those um, challenges to get to a second or third chance in life. But um, I, I often think that that was the hardest thing I could have ever faced in my life because it was the death of who I thought I was. And it was only the difficulty of that that, knocked me over the head enough to really let go of all the stuff I was carrying, all the burdens, the burdens of being a Lindbergh, the burden of being a physical, you know, guy who could do flips and, uh, you know, kind of on command, I could do a backflip. And that was, you know, fun party trick. But that identity was destroyed. And not only that, I couldn't, walk and 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 that crushing you know i mentioned that time in, in at the uh at the mail clinic when i just it just destroyed it finally bled out 
and I was able to release everything that I was holding. And from there, I could be reborn. And you can't really heal from rheumatoid arthritis. You can't, I'm sorry, there is no cure. Right. It's just management. But you can heal yourself. And when I, that's probably the greatest gift. So that out of that hardest sort of challenge came the greatest gift of dying and letting go and then being re- reborn in a way, allowing myself to rebuild. And um, so that healed me mentally. And incidentally, I was able to slowly over the decades build up my physical strength. And so I've had some some healing physically that's enabled me to do some extraordinary things at the top of, um, you know, maybe the 1% of being able to sort of climb and ski in the back country. Mm-hmm. And You're an avid hiker and skier, correct? Yeah, I can't really hike. <laughs> that's oh, really? the funny thing. I can hike up pretty much all day long. Mm, yeah. I can't go downhill. I hear you. My joints will will complain, and then pretty soon it's like existential. Am I going to make it back to the car? And that destroys me for a period of days or a week where I'm— Get the weekend warrior syndrome, right? Hurting really bad. And it's it's not—I'm it, actually better at it now at 54 than I was at age 40 um, because I've been able to slowly build up my stamina. I walk around the farm. I build stuff. I make things. I, I push myself past the point of pain— regularly try not to go too far to cause too much damage but what that's enabled me to do is to build up my ability to stand longer and and i mean i couldn't stand for more than a few minutes now i can stand i can walk around even on concrete i can go for a while but you know that's like the hardest surface it's the hardest on my joints it gets to me the first but if you you know if you put me on skis or wheels i can Pretty much fly down a mountain still, even though, you know, like my fingers aren't (laughs) too good. My joints are hammered, but I've been able to build up my ability um, to to mountain bike, for example. Um, I mountain bike in the Grand Forest a lot because it's near my house. I can ride right to it. And it's enabled me to just slowly go from going up the hill and around the circle and back down again to going all the way from from McRedmond to Battle Point Park doing a loop and coming back. And that's about an hour and a half with six big climbs. And, you know, it's a really good workout. And I find if I do that, it it can change my my mental outlook. I know it helps me physically as long as I don't crash. But it, but it shifts my whole um, state of mind. So if I get stressed or frustrated in my day-to-day life, which happens mm-hmm. um, pretty frequently, and I get on my bike, I just know if I get on it and I go, it, it, will, it will heal me for that day. And I'll be smiling for a couple of days after that. So what did your life look like from that period of post-high school, post-college, dealing with this? What what was your first step into recreating yourself? Um, well, I, it's interesting because I didn't die all at once. It wasn't like a car accident. Slow death, huh? It was really slow. And, and I mentioned it flares. So your feet get really sore like they're sprained. 
and you can't walk around, so you don't do much. And then they get better. So it's like, ah, let's go. And I could go out and hang out with my friends and go water ski or whatever, um, have some adventures, but then it would hit me again and I would just have to retreat from life. And so it was a slow sort of destruction, if you will. Um, cons- or, or I guess on the other end of sort of getting better, getting my knees replaced, okay, now I could walk a little bit better, but other joints hurt. So it's not like my skeleton was compromised. Um, that slow process of building has taken decades. And, um, and I don't know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's weird to think about and try to articulate because it's just been my life. Mm -hmm. Now I feel like, you know, I operate at a pretty high level, but I get exhausted um, if I go do – I was just in Germany at the Aero Friedrichshafen trade show for my business and um, and the Lindbergh Foundation hosting an event, an innovation forum. And you know, I'm walking around on concrete and talking to people. And, and talking to people is – it takes a lot of energy. Um, walking on concrete is hard on my body. It makes my, my back start to hurt and so forth. And if I'm actually walking, it's better than if I'm just standing. Standing is the worst. Um, so, so you know, my day to day life now is um, it, it, it's very interesting because I operate at a pretty high level and I crash and I crash hard and I need time to recover. And sometimes my business partners forget that and or they're like, "Oh yeah, take your time." Um, you know, we need you for the long haul, so it's really important that you. You know, you build yourself back up again. You exercise. And we're, my my three business partners in Vertigo Aero are – we're all skiers. And so we're all really supportive of taking that time because it's so rejuvenating. We talk about it the rest of the year. And you can just get a spark of enthusiasm just from talking about it. So in high school, what type of interest did you have educationally as opposed to athletic? What were your interests? <laughs> like you said you weren't – weren't a fan of math. Um, what kind of things did you gravitate to and why? Yeah, I think um, I, I don't have a natural aptitude for math. I can learn it, but I forget it easily. So that was my challenge in high school. Um, what I really was drawn to was working with my hands. I, 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 I did, um, you know, woodshop with Ed Selfers in middle school and then Mr. Schmidt in high school. And I kind of didn't like – I liked metal shop better, partly because of all the sanding you had to do in wood shop. It was just a pain. And um, I took metal shop with uh, Mr. Herzl was his name. Every chance I got, I took metal one, two, three, Mm -hmm. advanced metals. And then I took advanced metals like three or four more times because I could. Um, And I loved working on the mill, you know, and the lathes and so forth. And it's funny because I, I really graduated – I gravitated towards that creative side um, more so than machining. But then, you know, after I got out into life and worked and so forth, I, I went back to, to woodworking because I could see things in wood and I knew how to turn them into furniture and so forth. And that, that creative outlet sort of came back to me when I was disabled because I couldn't work a regular job. I didn't know when I could work. 
Um, but I could go and and hang out in my neighbor's shop and start to build things when I could and then sell at the Bainbridge Island Farmer's Market, for example. That kind of was the beginning of a you know, long creative period for me that I'm, I'm still doing. I'm still making sculptures and furniture. So in my high school experience, there was a lot more vocational classes, such as auto shop, wood shop, welding. Uh, I believe there was some training off campus for electricians. And I used to take a graphic arts class off campus. Was there those type of offerings at Bainbridge when you were in high school? Yeah. Yeah, there were. It, it, most of them are gone now. I mean, yeah, how, do, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I think it's wrong. I mean, I think the cookie cutter school system in general from, from you know, sort of elementary school and up, we don't pay enough attention to the individuals because we're all different. We all learn in different ways. We all have different aptitudes. And some of us are on the spectrum or – near the spectrum or around the spectrum. And um, I think we marginalize those kids often. We don't – and they're hard, right, to work with. It's, 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 a, it's a hard thing. It doesn't – we don't fit into a round, you know, peg hole or a square. Um, or a standard, you know, standardized uh, testing. Do we uh, all right. have the same – How crazy is that? If you want to make us all the same, great. But what, what businesses like Google – um, or Amazon have have really found is that well, they don't they don't want c- cookie cutter graduates. They want people who think outside the box. Yeah, like those, coding. Yeah. Those are the ones who are, are the people who are disruptive and can really innovate. Um, so so we know that now and we're getting better at it. Um, I think um, you know great job for the folks that organized Barn Bainbridge Island Arts Resource Network or whatever because they they're setting this up because we need this for our community. Yeah. It, it, it it's important, but um, alchemy industries too. Yeah. Alchemy, yeah. I mean, alchemy. I, pardon me. I think Jeremy's got an amazing thing going there, especially for kids who 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 you know need to find something to build with their hands and get dirty and break things and fix things. That's an incredibly important thing. That when we lose it in our community, we you know we're not as rich or resilient as a community. Absolutely. Um, college. Ha. What was I like? Coming <laughs> well, from a little island all right. school to college. So first I was a uh, ski bum. Uh, I got a work study from Bainbridge High School, and I studied how to wash dishes because I got a job. At, yeah. <laughs> I got a job at Crystal Mountain for the Snorting Elk um, restaurant and mm. bar and deli. It was there was kind of a pipeline of kids. bar and deli bar. It was a restaurant bar and deli. So there was a, a couple other kids in in the class ahead of me that had done this, and I was like, yes, I wanted to be a I wanted to ski more than anything in my life. I wanted to be physical, and I thought long run, I wanted to have a guide business and take people out to dig a snow cave and give them kind of a luxury yeah, especially experience. Out here or Crystal Mount, Mountain, you know. Being a tour guide out here or in downtown Seattle, it's a great place to do that. I tell you what. And anyway, that was my motivation. So I went and, you know, I, I could – the only job I could get in high school was dishwashing. Um, but I got a credit from a high school and I got three thirty-five an hour for washing dishes and I got to ski 
like crazy. And mm-hmm. and um, you're not the first to have a plan like this. That was it. You know, it was incredible for me. And I think um, you know. Then I then I graduated. Thankfully, I graduated because um, I wasn't really highly motivated by school. I I did well in my classes that I liked and I didn't do well in classes I didn't like or I didn't like the teachers. So I was pretty rebellious at that age. Contrarian. Uh, Oh, yeah. And, you know, there wasn't much to do on Bainbridge other than school. There weren't many activities. And I think in high school we had keg parties every weekend. And, you know, those – in fact, you have a little pet peeve with the historical society. Tell me. Drop dirt. Well, the <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. I think when we we walk down the you know the ferry rampway to walk on and to go into Seattle all the time, and there's a there's a sign banners, yeah. there's a sign that says you know what famous aviator has a connection to Bainbridge Island, and it used to say right behind it, um, uh, Charles Lindbergh's son raised five children here. Um, it now says it on the website, not on the back of the sign. It's that they want you to go to, which leads me to believe that it's actually true. My bro, one of my brothers was raised by wolves because there were six of us. So the hysterical factory got it a little bit wrong. The hysterical factory. Um, and I think, you know, what's, it's, it's usually really important for historians to get things wrong. Re- right and correct. So they are the ones that fact check. Sorry, like the bystander. Well, sorry to fact check you over the air on a public forum, but um, it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, wrong. Unless you consider that it must have been Leif that was raised by wolves. Um, could have been Morgan, but <laughs> hey, what do you think about the whole coyote controversy? People are flipping out about the coyotes. What about the coyotes? It seems to be the the social talk that you know they're nabbing kids and dogs and cats and. You know, oh, right. Becoming more more like Jaws at your front porch. Well, I would be more concerned about the proliferation of humans on Bainbridge Island there. They could do a lot more damage. Everything that coyotes do, humans do in a bigger way. So there's my canned sort of in-your-face answer. Um, you know, I think it's what's it, – the tragedy is that we're losing our, our historical party spots on the island. That, <laughs> you know, like – the old mill building is kind of still there, but I doubt you could hold a kegger there. The gray building is gone. What about Blakely Harbor with the graffiti building? Was that a hot spot when you were? That's the mill. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was the totally. Mill. Oh, we would park all up and down the road and go to the Jiffy Mart to see if you know where the party was. And Jiffy Mart. What is that? Uh, Al's or Mel's or uh, down in the South End? No, it was in Winslow. Oh, so it was downtown Winslow. But that was where you would go to find out, you know, if you didn't know what was going on on the weekend. So apparently the parties were pretty epic because of so much coverage. But I had Johnny Evison in here and Ian Ritchie. I don't know if you know either one of those islanders. But they were talking about how Bainbridge didn't have their own police force. Right. So when the cops got called on the kegger parties in the woods, they knew they had 40 minutes because the cops had to come from Bremerton to break up the party. Yeah, we had like half a cop on the island in a 24-hour period. Half a cop. <laughs> Something like that. Are we being over-policed now? Uh, They're spending a lot of money on the police department. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you need those kind of services, right? Because people are people. Um, 
But we've definitely gone overboard, and I think maybe you know we have definitely have a much kinder, gentler police force now, which I think is good. These things always, you know, sort of flip in life, and and they get really bad, and then they get better because people people want to do good. Yeah, get ahead of the curve a little bit too. Yeah, so I don't know if it's I, I try to stay arm's length with Bainbridge politics. Um, and I stay out of trouble now more than I did when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, I guess I graduated in life to some degree. Uh, so, so yeah. You yeah. know, I think we need that. <laughs> Do we need as much? I don't know. The, yeah, maybe we're looking forward to the last 12 years of the planet here. And we want to make an infrastructure that has enough... <laughs> Well, you but, know, that's you know, why Elon Musk is, you know, building the big rocket ships and... He's going to die of stress before he can get on that ship. <laughs> he might, but but he's setting a plan in motion, which is pretty amazing and pretty cool. It, You know, it gives... I think it gives a lot of people interest and hope, and that's an incredibly important thing to have in life. Yeah. Well said. Inspiration for exploring and finding new new... New ways. That's a that's a huge thing because it's easy to get um, ha- hammered by life. Yeah. Innovation is important. And bitter or stuck in a rut. Stuck in a rut, right? I mean, that's just life is intense. Yeah. Back to the police, real quick. When you were saying that staying in Indianola, that's a place that you, is more of a destination. Bainbridge is a drive-through. Sometimes from the yeah. peninsula to Seattle and we had the scenic highway and so much, many people just kind of trespassing to, for lack of a better word. So you see things from off Island infest the Island in trouble, you know, such as uh, methamphetamines and, you know, the crazy guy that got pulled over and got shot um, down there in Winslow green. Oh, shout out to everybody that um, is around Winslow green. There was a, Horrible fire last night. Oh, my gosh. Um, our hearts and thoughts, and if you need any help, please ask. A um, gentleman died in the condo above the pharmacy. Um, the fire, um, not too late last night, but it was responded by Coast Guard and um, multiple fire and first responders. But an 81-year-old man passed, and... Um, my thoughts go out to everybody in the Winslow Green and the businesses. Uh, oh, my gosh. Please continue to go to those businesses and support them through through these tough times. Sorry, I went off on a tangent so there. But the pharmacy is on the the left side as you the drive right. If you're going down Madison towards Winslow Green and you take a right where Calico Cat used to be, yep. two doors over, oh my right gosh. above – is where the fire happened. Wow. Yeah, so we need these infrastructures. Like, the you know, the fire departments are all being rebuilt, and um, we still need to do some things in the way of forestry around here to make it um, a place that we can respond to in case situations like this happen. But more and more things are happening. So, you know, it's probably a good thing that we're supporting the police department in having a new police station and... Um, Hiring more police officers and dealing with some of the stuff that is arising. Because as, as you say, when we get more and more populated, more and more things 
yeah. are going to happen. Well, especially if we're polarized and can't listen to each other or tolerate each other, then then it's a powder keg. And that's, um, you know, feels more like that than it ever has. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about some good stuff. Let's talk about space. Who are some of the people that uh, inspire you now in, in the space field, like, like Musk? Um, are you a fan of Neil Tyson DeGrasse at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he actually bought one of my rocket ship sculptures. Get out of here. Um, yeah, we, um, uh, we I, I started working with uh, a crazy group of people called the XPRIZE Foundation back in 1996, right as I was having my knees replaced. And it kind of gave me um, – I started working with the foundation, and it, it really gave me something incredible to work f- towards, right? Mm-hmm. The idea was – we, we we announced a $10 million prize for the first private manned space program, and um, we didn't have the $10 million, but that didn't stop us. Um, but we put up a prize. It was modeled after the prize that my grandfather won when he flew across the Atlantic in 1927 that jump-started the, the aviation industry, the, really the commercial um, aviation industry. Anyway, we put up the prize, and then um, – 27 teams competed to win that prize. And in 2004, Spaceship One, um, backed by Paul Allen and built by Burt Rutan, flew up into space, returned safely, did it again within two weeks, showing it was really sort of commercially reusable, unlike the space shuttle. Um, And we were able to jumpstart the private spaceflight industry, really shift the world's perspective about what could be done with space. And... um, out of that, we were able to sort of change the way the FAA and NASA and and um, everybody, you know, sort of governed spaceflight and opened up private spaceports and incentivized private companies to, um, you know, start carrying passengers into space. And, and so Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and... Um, and Paul Allen with his newly launched Strato Launch program, um, all with that eye towards, you know, how are we going to do this more efficiently than our governments can, um, have built businesses. And they're starting to, you know, look at taking passengers up and, um, you know, maybe go to the moon or Mars, et cetera. That's are there other places in the world that are competing to do this as well? Is other, it a competition? Because it's not collaborative, other, right? It's, Billionaires. Those are billionaires, like, really doing crazy businesses, right? Right. Long-term, but big business. Um, So as a follow-on prize, we started something called the Google Lunar X Prize to send the first private robotic explorers to the moon. Um, It took a lot longer than we thought, and Google eventually – they extended it several times, but eventually pulled the, the big pot of funding away. But one of the teams that was competing just launched a rover to the moon, um, Space IL, out of Israel. And Mm -hmm. they crashed and burned. They didn't quite make it to the surface. They had a problem. But um, the foundation decided we're going to give them a million-dollar moonshot award because they came really close. And it was a a long time and a huge hurdle to get there. Um, So... That's incredibly inspiring. Just back to your question, who's inspiring me right now? Um, I'm not really a rocket scientist, so I set my sights back on aviation and and how we could try to um, 
really address the threats facing the aviation industry, and those are threats to our quality of life here on the planet as humans, noise, emissions, um, safety, etc. So how do we do that within the aviation industry? And that's kind of my life right now really focused on um, how do we open up short distance transportation and make it efficient for us to get from a mobility challenged area like Bainbridge Island over to Redmond and back in 30 minutes as opposed to four to six hours if you have a meeting over there and, and, and you have traffic, especially at peak traffic times. Um, we could be incredibly efficient if we can use electric propulsion or distributed electric propulsion and take off from Bainbridge, fly in the, in the air um, without traffic, without ferries, without that infrastructure, um, and come back. But don't we get too much air traffic once we start doing that? Yeah, there, there, this is a big question mark. This is a big issue. Um, but I think, um, you know, have you ever been stuck in ground traffic? Is that pleasant? Yes, no. It's, it's, I'm more of a t- two planes colliding above my house and falling down on top of my house <laughs> worry than how long I got to wait in the air. Well, that's interesting because, okay, so for you, that that's the first thing that came up. Um, and that's a valid concern. I think with today's technology, we can easily address that and, and have fixed routes, low-altitude routes. Um, can we have automated electric airplanes? Autonomous planes are coming. Autonomous cars are coming. And arguably, it's easier to do planes because they don't have as many physical obstacles and or animated obstacles on the ground running in front of them. Like cars, we'd have to have another infrastructure for just automated cars. We wouldn't co-mingle them, would we? No, I think they are already being co-mingled. And as they mature, more and more automated cars will, um, will be our transportation. And at some point, the insurance companies are going to say no more humans are allowed to drive unless they're on special tracks and super safe because humans are not as safe as the autonomous systems. So, so I think that's the sort of the pathway that's going to happen. Um, how soon is a good question. So what's your involvement in, in these projects? <laughs> uh, well, I started, I started, you know, looking at what are the problems we face in aviation, general aviation, because I love to fly. But it's, it's loud, and we broadcast that noise over large areas. Um, it's, it's inefficient, and we're, we're putting out carbon at altitude where there's no trees to scrub it out. Oh. Um, Didn't even think of that. Right. And, and, and so these are issues that could extinct the industry, right? There are also issues that if we had zillions of planes flying in the air, who would want to live? That would just be a horrible, um, you know, way to live life if it was if you're if if it was drowned out by noise. It would be the Jetsons all over again. If we could do it like the Jetsons, and it wasn't, you know, if it was quiet and it was efficient, we need that three dimensional space up above because traffic on the ground is crazy. There are too many humans and and too many cars that are sitting there idling and producing heat and exhaust emissions and burning fossil fuels. Um, inefficiently using our time on the ground. Um, so I think the the ideal is there. The question is, can we make them quieter? That's a huge issue. 
And in fact, a lot of people, that's when they really think about it. Have you ever heard a drone flying near your head? Mm-hmm. Sounds like angry mosquitoes or something. Yeah. Nobody wants that. So they have to be quiet. But anytime you move a lot of air, it's noisy. So how can you make them quiet? So my company, um, we actually, I started investigating electric propulsion as a way to uh, make aviation clean and quiet at, at the very bottom level, gliders and small airplanes. Um, and we started doing a program, a quiet flight initiative program down at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in, in Florida. And um, we've learned a lot, but along in that process, we thought we have all the tools to make a flying car like the Jetsons. It would take off vertically, translate horizontally and fly on a wing so it's efficient, and then land vertically. Now, is this true? You made the first flying car? Well, no, <laughs> definitely not. Um that there, wasn't your DeLorean? No. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so we decided we had all the right um, the right technology, and we formed a company called Vertigo Aero, and we're, we, we came out with a desi- beautiful design for a flying car and, and launched and saw the industry rapidly grow. So there's now 150 official – um, electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles in the in that marketplace, um, and a year ago we decided that's that's too many competitors, and and there's too much money has flowed in, um, backing some of those competitors. What we really need to do is the hybrid electric propulsion systems that will enable these cars to fly. That's our expertise, and so we pivoted to to to, to making it a part. Developing all these people can use the propulsion systems that we can sell to the rest of the industry. And Smart. part of the, well, part of the, you know, our thought process was that people have been promising battery um, advancements um, over the last ten years that are unrealistic. And and when I first started looking at electric propulsion for aviation, the the experts were saying, well, eight to ten percent increase in energy efficiency per year. And the reality is that it's closer to three percent. And even when those batteries get that um, efficiency and come a little closer to um, the energy that you can get in a gallon of gas or a pound of gas, that energy equivalent, um, it's going to take a long time to certify. And in, in aviation, certification is everything. You can't use it for commercial purposes unless you're certified. So there's now a few of these really interesting looking electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, which I like to call flying cars because everybody knows what a flying car is. And they're flying. And they're flying now. And it shows you that potential. But it's going to take a long time for that to become a reality for us to fly back and forth, either around a city that has bad traffic or uh, I like to call mobility-challenged areas like an island um, or Norway, for example, that has these giant fjords, and you could hop across the fjord really quickly. Um, but it's not practical to build airports everywhere that have long um, takeoff and landing strips. So now that we've done that, we've we people are now coming to us wanting to participate because the market's really realizing that it, the the next step is hybrid propulsion, especially in aviation. Because um, every pound of weight you carry up in the air, um, you need more energy. And then 
you're carrying more energy and that's more weight and you need more energy to carry that. So it's a negative feedback loop. So aviation is extremely weight sensitive and the power that you get in a gallon of gasoline is extremely dense. Um, so for the near term future, hybrid electric propulsion will be um, what enables this kind of transportation to grow. Um, and then as batteries come along and get certified in scale, um, then eventually we'll go all electric. And that'll enable really to be a much more efficient industry, but it's going to take those intermediate steps. That's so cool. So is most of your time spent in aviation right now or art? Because I've seen it, or is it a combination? Like I, like we were talking earlier, like, is there a hobby that, you know, kind of decompresses all the stress that we have? Do you go over to the wood shop and, and, and still build stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've been doing art, making furniture and sculptures for 25 years and it's waxed and waned depending on how busy I am with quote unquote real jobs. Um, you guys got to see this stuff. EricLindberg.com. <laughs> the art is just amazing. It, it, it is a therapy for me because you can make something on a, on a real-time scale. Like I've been doing this startup now for two and a half years and we're still not getting paid. And you can also make something that you could sell. And that's helped me to add some cash flow to the family when my wife is also doing a startup and has been at it for two years. And she's just now starting to um, you know, build back her, yeah. her cash flow again. So, so it's both, for me, an artistic and sort of mental therapy outlet, and it's a source of cash flow because I sell my sculptures. And, and I'm working on a big commission for an 11-foot-tall rocket ship sculpture that I'm uh, making for a client in Southern California that has smoke and lasers and lights and um, chrome over the bronze. It's a, it's, a, it's a deep, long project that's taken a long time, but it's also helped me. Your stuff's ridiculous. I got to survive. Say, as somebody that is creative, I think, is what I would call myself to some extent. You know, I like to dabble here and there. Um, but I'm just amazed, especially the type of wood you use on some of that stuff. It's it's hard, not super pliable stuff, you know, and you see your creations within it. And I, I kind of fancy it to uh, my neighbor. We were homesteaders, lived off the grid, and there was a guy that was our neighbor who would find driftwood on the beach. And then he would melt crayons and he would dig away the sand and put the 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 wax into the sand so it would come in this really odd shape and have the driftwood right in the middle and he would carve a sculpture out of the driftwood whatever he saw and it was mostly disguised faces from the huh. knots that were in the driftwood huh. amazing stuff and he sold that out of the garage sale and that's how he survived you know he, he was poor as poor as can be but <laughs> that was his thing that's the thing about art you could you could make as much as some poets <laughs> uh, painters too it's like Van Gogh and, and these guys Picasso was trading paints for smokes you know and then they die and their stuff's astronomically um, priced you know millions and millions of dollars but when they were making that couldn't sell it for nothing Had could barely trade a Picasso for a pack of cigarettes 
Yeah, and I think that's there's a piece of that that is you just you make it for yourself and you and you're compelled to, and hopefully you can sell it. But if you make it for somebody else, it's harder to sell. So it just has to be driven from within. And for me, it started with driftwood. I started seeing things. You know, I'd walk on the beach. Um, like, oh, you could make a chair out of that or a bench out of that, and that's how I started making. And I made a bench and. I gave it away, and then I made a table, and I gave it. You know, so and so had a wedding, and I gave it away, and then I got a little flack for, um, you know, always giving my stuff away. So like, then someone offered to buy a piece, and I went, "Oh, okay, yeah." And I could do it, kind of, even though my body was hurting, I could do it and go and sell it at the Bainbridge Farmers Market, which was really cool. Um, you know, an enabling outlet for me. It's hard work to transport furniture especially big slabs of wood mm-hmm. um, if your joints aren't, you know, in good shape. But but I could and I did and it enabled me to sort of grow, um, you know, my business and do commissions. And then someone bef- before I really started doing um, sculptures, I was more furniture, a, a local guy said, oh, can you do a Spirit of St. Louis? That your grandfather's book inspired both my brother and I to become pilots. And I was like, no, I can't do that. I do this rustic, you know, live edge work, right? And he's like, yeah, but I like your style. Could you just kind of make it in the general shape? And I started thinking about it and playing around with it in my shop. And um, and I got into it because it's unique. The spirit of St. Louis is a very unique shape. And I um, I started flying it through my shop in my hand and thinking about what it was like for my grandfather to fly across the Atlantic in 1927 and then wondering if I could do it. You know, here I had another chance at life um, and I was pushing through barriers. And one of those barriers is I call Lindberghophobia. It was just like wanting to keep that legacy at bay because it was really intense. Yeah, kind of like Michael Jordan's kids, you know. I, I bet. I don't know them, but they've got to be allergic to the Air Jordan thing because it's not them and it's really right. intense. Um, anyway, that that sculpture got me thinking, well, maybe I could fly across the Atlantic. And then that idea led to a whole program that we developed at XPRIZE and where I did. I, I trained hard again. We built an airplane and um, with a partner in, in Bend, Oregon, to, to outfit the plane. And on the 75th anniversary of my grandfather's flight, I retraced his steps from San Diego to St. Louis, St. Louis to New York, and then New York to Paris, um, all with a message about the future of flight, space flight, and the X Prize. Um, and it, it, was, it was extraordinary, not just because it enabled me to raise money for the X Prize, which we were broke. We should have. We were about ready to fail. Um, we had half a guy in the office. Everybody else moved away. No one was getting paid um, because we couldn't raise money. I love your term, half a guy, half a cop. Well, it was, I mean, it was true. He had to have a, a, another job to to mm-hmm. keep the doors open. Um, and so my flight helped reinvigorate X Prize at a time when when we were. We were about ready to shut the doors down and call it good. Um, now, you're coming up on the 100th anniversary, aren't you? That's the cool thing. So with that do it again? flight, I was able to sort of get a half a billion media impressions all pointed towards the X Prize. That was pr- before social media. And a, and a million dollars plus a million dollars in kind. And it saved the X Prize. Not that I was the only board member that saved it. 
Um, I think everybody did at one point or another. But it, it, w- with that, we shifted the world's perspective about spaceflight, that it wasn't just the province of governments. It, private industry could do it and do it cheaper and do it better. And now we have this thriving spaceflight industry that led me back to aviation. How do we do that for aviation? How do we make it sustainable, clean and green? And so that's what informs me now as we're looking for the 100th anniversary of flight. So it's eight years from now. What are we going to do? What's the message we're going to bring to the world um, about the future of flight? And how are we going to make it sustainable? Um, because we need this planet to be habitable for our kids and their kids. Um, so that that sort of exercise has been really percolating for the last five years, but the last six months with the Lindbergh Foundation. And we're going to launch a new program roughly called Pioneering Sustainable Flight and give those awards to people who are pioneering the use of electric propulsion, for example, um, yeah, how cool would it be to do an electric plane to replicate that flight now? That would be way cool. I think it, I think it's going to have to be a hybrid electric solution at this point, which is not necessarily more efficient, um, but it is a stepping stone. And it's eight years, so I don't know. This technology may move quicker, but that those are the questions we're asking because obviously we want to have a really big party. <laughs> is that a flight you would do again if – Something like that um, offered itself up that you had a hybrid electric plane? Would you take off from New York to Paris? Well, I told myself, no, I didn't need to ever do that again because it was intense. It was hard. And it was risky. Um, But tell me why all that is. Well, it's a long distance and it's over hostile. I mean, we're not meant to live in the oceans (laughs) so if you went down there's very little between new york there's nova scotia that's unpopulated very unpopulated land then there's sort of st john's newfoundland for a brief period of time and then you're over ocean for most of that flight and then you hit france how long is that flight um well my grandfather did it in 33 hours holy moly by himself didn't sleep the night before, so it was incredibly risky for him. Um, Why didn't he sleep the night before? He couldn't sleep. Well, what got was it like for you? Too late. Well, I saw that as a big risk factor, and so I, I got seven hours of sleep the night before. Um, How do you feel about sleep in general? I need more of it. Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> and it's harder for me now. I, yeah, I, 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 I suffer um, myself. I still... I'm a night owl, so I stay up late, and that's a great time for me because no one's bugging me and I can get good work done, but I stay up too late, and now I can't sleep in. Right. I've reached an age where it's like, nope, I'm awake in the morning, and and so I end up getting sleep-deprived if I'm not good about, um, you know, going to sleep at night. So So how did you prepare yourself for this? Was it? It was intense. Physical, mental training? All uh, of it. Air pressure? Well, um, what does one do? Well, I did ditch and egress training. So what is that? Dilbert the Dunker, where you go in this big aircraft fuselage and you practice dunking sideways and upside down in the dark at, you like know, you're all deprived of senses or? They put you in this sim- simulated cockpit and then dump you in the water like you're crashing an airplane. And you have to 
real, you know, figure out how to get out. And it, there's lots of little tricks that are fascinating that you don't know. Like you pretend you drove off the end of the ferry, like some guy did years ago, and your car was sinking. What would you do? Immediately the get the windows down. First thing you would do. That's, that's great. That is the right reaction. You want to equalize the pressure you know, between. But if you can't, most people say, oh, you want to get out of your seatbelt because it's holding you, right? It's holding you captive in your car or your airplane. But that's the last thing you want to do because as soon as you unbuckle, then you start floating, floating. free yeah. and everything else is floating around and there's bubbles and maybe oil and stuff in the water and you, you don't know where anything is. But when you're buckled in, you know, you know exactly, exactly where the where door handle is. You know where the window is. Um, if you have a an oxygen bottle or something you could breathe in or a bucket to put over your head. You a know, bucket over my head. What do you mean? That's like, what the guy who drove off the end of the ferry did. He, they found him like days later with a bucket over his head. He was trying to breathe. At least that's what I heard. And that was when I was a wow. kid. Wow. Yeah, apparently he had a heart attack and flew off, bro- broke through the end of the ferry and sunk in Seattle. Um, Crazy. At least that's what I remember. Anyway, th- so there's those are all practical things that I – that was a piece of the training. Um, I flew all around the country um, training, instrument flight training, um, modifying the, the aircraft, et cetera. And, and physically, it was a challenge for me because I had rheumatoid arthritis, and I, it was hard for me to sit for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. Now okay. we know that sitting is the new smoking or – yeah. Maybe it's even worse than that. <laughs> I'm get and, a stretch. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we know that um, that was hard for me, but it was much easier than what my grandfather faced. So it take you about the same amount of time? No, about half the time. So it took me 17 hours and was seven minutes. Because the plane was better or? It was faster. Okay. Yeah. Although it still looks essentially the same. It's a you know big engine and a lot of gasoline and... You know, my aircraft was uh, modern, made with um, composite uh, materials, and I had a viscokinetic polymer seat that, you know, sort of conformed to my my shape and allowed me to keep my circulation, you know, going mm. and things like that. So I had advantages, but it was still a similar small single-engine plane. When was the first time you got in a plane besides that wood one when you were 11? Uh, Famous picture. <laughs> uh, yeah. I may have had a couple of flights early on, but I didn't start actually flying until I was 24. And what made you decide to be a pilot? Well, it's funny because people say, oh, you were born as a pilot, born right? Born to do this. And, 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 and that's not at all the case. In fact, I was sort of allergic to the whole Lindbergh legacy. So that was the last thing I would have thought about doing as a profession um, but a buddy of mine who grew up on the island kept bugging me. Oh, let's go take an, a, you know, an introductory flight. I want to learn how to fly. And he did. And then he was like, oh, it's so cool. And he was, he, bu- he got under my skin. I finally was like, all right, I'll go take a flight. And I did. I took a introductory flight with a flight instructor and I went, oh, this is cool. I want to do this. I love looking down at the ground from above. And I thought I'm, I'm good enough to do this. And so I got my private pilot's license. And during that process, I realized, you know, I needed a career. I was 24, 25. I'd been casting around a bit. I'd had my life somewhat interrupted, but I thought I could still fly with arthritis. And 
Um, so I went on to get my commercial certificate and instrument ratings and so forth and then started uh, flight instructing. How different is it to fly a plane versus driving a car? Hmm. Well, it's um, it's a lot different because you have a whole other dimension to sort of worry about. Car, you're pretty much four wheels on the ground, so the ground changes and you move with it, but it's not really three-dimensional. So it, it it's different because you have um, – and I'll say it's really kind of easy. A monkey could take off. You could probably train a monkey to take off. But landing is the hard part. So it's when you're interfacing back again with Earth and gravity's going to bring you back eventually. <laughs> Not always in a good way. R- regardless, right. So um, so that, that, um, that part, the interface of landing is the hard part, or emergency procedures, or weather. You know, it's a multidisciplinary um, uh, profession with rules and regulations written by lawyers and government bureaucrats that mm-hmm. are hard to remember. Um, so you have to get good at knowing what the rules and regulations are. You have to deal with the weather, and the weather's always changing, and it's unpredictable. And between the weather and gravity, a lot of people die. And icing, right? Exactly. Um, and thunderstorms and Ugh. and just being able to see. You have to be able to see to be able to land. And that's changing, I think. With the advent of distributed electric propulsion, being able to take off vertically and code, the the ability for us to write the code to to operate more like a drone or with a joystick, you'll be able to fly – fairly easily um, in the future. Kind of like helicopters set up. Simply, yes, but helicopters are complex. They're hard to fly. Yeah. They have cyclic and collective and I rudders. And I've seen enough movies that I don't want to be on a helicopter. <laughs> I love helicopters. They're amazing. But have you flown some? Yes, but they're incredibly complex and they're horrifically noisy. So they'll never scale. I mean, that is a flying car, right? Mm-hmm. It takes off vertically and it moves and then it lands you can land them just about anywhere but they're super complex and they're which makes them dangerous because as they say um thousands of parts flying in loose formation they need a at least they used to need an average of two hours of maintenance for every flight hour wow Um, that gives you an idea of how much maintenance they take because of all those parts um and i don't know if that's still the case but um it, it, it was a common saying um, and the, the, the noise is really a factor of the tip speed of the rotor or a prop on an airplane. Um, the engine noise that comes from an airplane or a helicopter is, isn't that loud compared to the propeller and specifically the tip speed because it's moving faster or supersonic speeds. So that's where the real loud part of the noisy aircraft come in. Have you gone supersonic speed? No. How complicated would it be to be a Blue Angel? I don't know. I think you have to be really good at what you do, yeah. yeah. And really physically fit because the pressure, the, the G-forces are um, intense. So you have to marry that. Um, you ever uh, passed out from G-forces? No, but I've gotten sick. 
<laughs> I love it's it when the not pleasant. <laughs> Blue Angels pick up some local reporter and take him up, and then they film it, you know, for the little 30-second segment on Como or whatever, and that, that reporter's throwing up upside down and blacking out. <laughs> yeah, it's I like mean, they, good good journalistic piece that right there. It, and I think often they're trained not to do that. They want you to have a good time. Um, but a friend of mine that used to work on the Lindbergh Foundation board um, got a, they call it a distinguished visitor ride on an F-15 out of um, St. Louis. And he said, don't, he didn't want to waste taxpayers' money. He said, just do your normal training mission. I don't want to waste taxpayers' money. I want this to be what you normally do. Well, the the problem is the, the guy then went and did a 45-minute full-on 9G maneuvers. I don't know exactly what, but it spun his gyros so bad in the back seat that he was sick and in the hospital for three weeks. Like he couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't move. Anytime he moved, he would just start spinning. And so I think it could be uh, incredibly hard on the human body if, you're, if you don't build up to that. Right. You don't just jump behind the seat and takes, the wheel. It takes training. And if you think about it, that's incredibly... Um, resource intensive. If we're thinking about yeah, climate how much change, gas are we et cetera. There? Well, training is yeah, training too. Training is huge, and that's the the thing. I, I it, being a conscious person, um, and having evolved with my grandparents' sort of ethos of trying to balance advancing technology with preservation of the environment, because our quality of life is the fulcrum of that balance, right? Um, I spend a lot of time teaching people how to fly. It's sitting in an airplane, burning fuel, granted a small engine, a small airplane, but that training, you know, I did that a lot. And sometimes people went on to a career and sometimes they didn't. Um, but it made me really think, you know, I'm wasting a lot of energy here, fossil fuels, making a lot of noise, broadcasting it. You know, how do we make that more efficient? And that was part of the evolution for me of, really promoting electric propulsion is that if we the, the electric is now good enough the the energy in an electric in a, in a battery compared to gasoline is is good enough for flight training so local to your airport using a really efficient airplane with high lift over drag um, that's sort of one of the entry points for electric propulsion and it's now starting to grow. So if you can learn an electric airplane, hopefully using um, energy that they've harvest, you, we've harvested off of a rooftop or solar energy, then it's, then it's sort of zero emissions, hopefully, getting closer. So more, more efficient. And that's kind of what led me down this path. How do you see flight simulation going? Like getting in a cab that's basically a video game that replicates artificial intelligence of the and that can re replicate a real flight in real you know i've been in a few in in museums and such where it moves with the mistakes yeah. that you make and yeah, they're it, great. it seems realistic they're amazing in fact and then they're better and better some of them have you know full motion um and that's a great way to to get X amount of your training. I say X because it's unknown, it, but, it, but it helps you when you get into an actual airplane. In fact, using um, Microsoft Flight Simulator way back when mm -hmm. helped me in different ways. Um, in fact, when I flew 
myself from New York to Paris, I, I, I flew that in flight simulator and I knew what uh, Le Bourget Field was going to be like on the approach and the instrument approach because I flew it in flight simulator with my cheesy, you know, hacked together system on my computer. I don't even think Microsoft makes it anymore, but other companies do. Um, but if you could do that and get familiar with it beforehand, that helps. You still have to know how to fly by the seat of your pants. We're not ready for autonomy yet. Um, and so you have to actually do that physical flight training and it takes fuel. Um, so we're not quite there yet, but that uh, flight simulation is coming. And the other thing that's coming is, uh, are the, um, you know, virtual reality um, things that are going to, you know, potentially disrupt the travel industry. This is one of the things we, we, we saw at XPRIZE Foundation was um, we had a, a company, Japan, Japan, JAL, Japan Airlines, um, say, what, what would disrupt the travel age, uh, industry? people moving around well it's if you could put on um a headset with goggles and 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 um earphones and haptic suit that gave feedback and enabled you to go visit someone in a foreign country or a landmark and it was real enough that it gave you the experience then maybe you wouldn't travel there Mm. this stuff is coming so you could fly to cancun lay on the beach and never leave your office Possibly. I mean, that's kind of like, what was the Schwarzenegger movie, uh, virtual? No, it was, uh, I can't remember. There was a famous Schwarzenegger movie where, a Total Recall, where he goes, you could buy a, a virtual vacation and you could do it as a secret agent. Mm. I, didn't, I only knew him as governor. Didn't know he made movies. Oh my God. That's, that was Just w- one of my favorite ones because it really messes with your head. What's Escape from Gravity? Escape from Gravity is my um, massively transformative purpose. (laughs) (laughs) To borrow my friend uh, Salim Ismail wrote a book uh, about exponential businesses. And uh, having a massively transformative purpose gives you something to really push out in life. And I realized mine was escaping from gravity. And it's, it's not just, you know, my desire to fly into space and look back and see our planet from from space or to fly in an airplane it's to get out of bed in the morning it's it's really about me cheating gravity every day because i didn't know i'd live this long and and i'm strong enough to get out of bed although sometimes that's my the hardest time of the day is getting my body moving again it hurts my joints need lubrication before they can start you know, really moving with authority and I'm sore and so forth. So it's that escape. And I think it's my sort of, um, my challenge every day on the most basic level to go get a cup of coffee and get my, you know, my oatmeal going and food and with a vision towards um, building sculptures. And I would love to fly into space and experience weightlessness and look back and see the earth because everything we know and love and depend upon to survive is down here. Um, and that's our only truly sustainable spaceship that we have spaceship earth. We don't take care of it. We're done. You know, maybe they'll find fossils of us 
in the future, they. They, uh, whoever they are. Yeah. But but that's kind of my my escape. And, and it's coupled with, you know, I'm so fortunate to have another chance at a physical life and be able to sort of slowly start skiing again, starting with just cross-country shooshing through the forest with a backpack on and now climbing and skiing big mountains and telemarking again. Um, what is telemarking? It's a downhill cross-country skiing. So you're dropping a knee and leading with one ski rather than just parallel skiing. Oh, okay. And I, I kind of do both. I go from fakie marking, they call it. That's when you're parallel on telemark skis to, to telemarking when it's when the conditions are good. Um, What's your favorite mountain? And they're all my favorite mountain. Yeah, <laughs> one with the fresh snow. As I as I started getting more and more back into it, I found myself sitting in this tiny little hut off the grid in British Columbia with six of my buddies, and we're all complaining about getting old. But every day for seven days in a row, we're we're waking up, cooking food, getting our backpacks all filled together, hydration packs, and avalanche gear, and shovels, and transceivers, and so forth, and planning out our route. And we're climbing two or three mountains over, so we're transitioning from a climb to a descent to a climb to a descent, and then we're going to climb that because the weather's good. That's the big mountain. Trophy Mountain, for example. Um, that was the biggest backcountry day I've ever done. Ten hours, door to door, on your feet. How could I do that? And 10,000 feet of vertical, which is a huge, incredibly huge day. Um, and I built myself up to that, even though my joints are hammered. And we found ourselves in the side of this hut after a day like that in the midst of a week, in the midst of the mountains with no communications to the outside world. We were dropped off. We get picked up a week later. We're self-guided, self-catered. Um, and we said, we're old, but we're, we're living large. And that's where this idea of we're, we're old guys rocking. That's beautiful. We're ogres. We're kind of ugly. We're kind of... But we're still doing it, and we're tromping around in the mountains. And that that escape, for me, is the highlight of my year. We, we called it the trip of a lifetime. We started doing it every year, and then we are like, are we crazy? We're 50s, 60s even, some of our crew. Why are we doing the trip of a lifetime only once a year? So now we try mm. to do twice a year, plus some local stuff. That's awesome. It's it's amazing. It's an amazing gift, and and none of us sort of knows. I feel like I'm right on the edge physically, and it, all it takes is one thing, and I can no longer do that. So it feels incredibly poignant, and I celebrate it. I'm a little bit manic about it, even, um, but it gives me so much joy, as you could tell, listening to my voice. That it, well, I see the smile on on your face every time you speak about it. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's really given me something incredible in my life to rally around and to train for. Because if I don't stay in shape all year, you lose your it, shape. It'll be incredibly painful to follow Mike Durzon while he gallops up the hill, singing at you at the same time. He doesn't get out of breath. And if you sit around too long, he's like, "I'm cold. Let's go." You can't follow those guys if you're not in semi-decent shape. You can mm. pace yourself and take your time, but um, that, that really keeps me motivated. And, man, I don't know how long that's going to last. 
it's a, it's a it's an incredible gift and um, keeps me motivated. That and sit ups to keep my back from hurting. Wow. Hey, um, does the Lindbergh Foundation still work with the Wright Brothers Foundation? Um, a few years back, you were offering some discovery classes or something in Ohio at the original factory. Is that correct? The 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 that would be the Wrights. So uh, Amanda Wright Lane and her brother Stephen, and I don't know exactly all the things that they're doing. We we're friends. We love each other, um, and they've done some things with the Lindbergh Foundation, and we've done some things with them. So you guys are mutually supportive, but not necessarily linked up. Yeah, yeah. It, a couple of years ago, I um, hosted a program called First Families of Flight, and um, we got a group together in Germany, uh, members of the Zeppelin family, Dornier, the big flying boats, um, uh, Bertrand Picard and Andre Borschberg from Solar Impulse, uh, Sergei Sikorsky and and. Prince Albert sort of anchored the crew as a head of state. <laughs> so cool. Um, very cool. But the whole idea was we gather that sort of first families of flight, both historical and leading edge now, like Andre Borschberg's family wasn't famous for flying, but but he and, and Bertrand Picard were the first to fly around the world in a solar airplane z- using zero emissions. Um, when was that? Uh, over the last five years, essentially, the solar impulse. If you want to look it up online, and and so that's it's that idea that we're we're, we're now going to resurrect that program and build this pioneers of sustainable flight that I said, really honoring those people who are pushing it now, because our industry is very conservative. Ah, oh, you know, yeah, can't do this, can't do well, that. yeah, because jets are incredibly they're they're safe, generally. And efficient per seat mile, but they use huge amounts of fuel. And there are so many people are traveling today that, that it's a larger and larger percentage of the emissions pie, if you will, that causes global warming, if you believe in that sort of thing. Um, and so it's a conservative industry, but somebody's got to take the lead in, in making it more sustainable from whatever angles we can figure out. And so we, we think that's the, the Lindbergh Foundation's sweet spot. And and by the hundredth anniversary of my grandfather's flight, I'm hopeful that we can do a New York to Paris flight in a practical electric airplane. Bertrand and Andre already did it in Solar Impulse, but it was incredibly impractical, expensive, slow. Um, that's a great goal to have, and we've got to do that if we're gonna if we're gonna, you know, sort of push the limits. You ever parasailed or hang glide? <laughs> yeah, both. Uh, I've never done hang gliding. My sister was a hang glider, but I've done parasailing, and it was amazing. And I have a glider rating. Some of the funnest flying I've ever done. Gli- gliders are beautiful. Yeah. Well, you're out there, and it's 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 you're soaring, and there's this tension because you're looking for lift or minimum sink. So you're looking at the clouds, and you're looking at the eagles, and they're circling. There's indicators of rising air currents. And you're always looking at the airport because you want to get back to the airport and land. <laughs> you don't want to have an off-airport landing. Um, so there's this inherent tension, and it is just amazing and incredibly fun, just beautiful. So can you go to a mindful spot, kind of a little meditation-esque when you're gliding? 
Or are you always a little bit stressed? Uh, I don't know. I haven't done enough of it, I guess, to really check out like that. I got the rest of the day free. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I have some time. But you know where I check out is is when I'm climbing. Uh-huh. And I've come to like the climb almost as much as the descent when I'm skiing and uh, mountain biking. I I check out. And that's when I solve problems in my head and I mm-hmm. come up with solutions or ideas, business ideas or um, sculpture ideas. Um, and it's when I check out and it's, and, it's, and it's an incredibly physically demanding pay attention kind of a thing. But when you can let go because you're breathing so hard and you've been in it for long enough, I think it's maybe like the marathon, the, the zone that people get in. Um, then you I, hit that wall and got pushed through. Yeah, then there's some moments of agony, too. But. Not that I know, because I've never ran a marathon. That's <laughs> not on my bucket list. Hot air balloon? Uh, yeah, I've ridden in a couple. Yeah. But it's weird, because you think it'd be really peaceful, but then there's this giant propane tank yeah. going, right behind you, and burning the back of your head. Plus, you're in a picnic basket. <laughs> it's cool. It's interesting. Yeah, I had it on my bucket list, but I took it off. I was playing soccer at 60 Acres in Woodinville, and they used to have a huge pasture of balloons, and one was coming down, and it skipped across the soccer field I was playing on, and then it tilted, and the propane went up and disintegrated the balloon, and then the people, it just kind of skipped because the basket came off, and it was horrible. Oh, boy. And I was like, it was, it was a, like a festival. There's all yep. kinds of beautiful balloons up there. Yeah. It looks magical. Photographs are gorgeous. But actually playing a soccer game and having a balloon crash <laughs> on your field, I was like, scratch that off the list. Gravity sucks. <laughs> For some. Hey, um, if you had a superhero power and it couldn't be flying, what would it be? Huh. A super superhero power. It's funny because we've just watched like Agents of Shield and things like that with the kids. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I have it already. That's an awesome answer. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty lame, but it's uh, no, it's beautiful. But I do have it. I I've gotten to a point in my life where I I hurt more physically. But I'm happier than I've ever been. And maybe it's the happy superpower. Challenges suck, but they don't affect me like they used to. They, they, it's like, oh, okay, I got to deal with this, but it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not, I don't identify with my core self as much anymore. It's just something else that has to be dealt with and we'll get through it one step at a time. Because I've survived all those other ones that were threatening to my identity or my profession or my, you know, whatever. I did some stupid things earlier in life, and some of them I was deeply ashamed of because they were wrong. Others were, you know, stupid, and I, I hurt myself. And others were, you know, challenging challenges that other people presented to me, you know, on a fundamental level. But... You know, getting old, there's something about getting old that's beautiful. Yeah, I think the word's experience. 
you know, you, you can say you messed up here, there, and other places, but basically that is accumulation of your gazette, of your learning, your experiences. It's all contributed to who you are now. And, uh, hey, no regrets, right? If it hasn't killed you. <laughs> it only makes you stronger. And older, old age overcomes youth. Uh, um, old age. And treachery. Treachery. <laughs> overcome youth and skill every time. So before we go out of here, um, can you tell me a little bit of your grandfather's legacy? What has he meant to aviation? Um, what was it like basically being the most famous person on the planet for about a 10-year span? All that came with that. What is kind of your your takeaway of your grandfather's legacy? Yeah, wow. That's a big question. Um, it's taken me a lifetime to work through and process and deal with and embrace and all of it. Um, I bet. You know, I think he meant a tremendous amount and still means a tremendous amount to aviators in general. Um, he he was a contentious figure in history also. He spoke his mind and he um, uh, he said some things I wish he never would have said. Um, but he was a good person in general and he was always thinking about how to how to he was thinking about solutions in life and about how to make things better generally. Um, and so I think for me, it was really forgiving him for the hard edge that he had to become in order to survive in his life. He, that fame hurt him tremendously. It, it, it stunted his own personal growth in some ways. And, um, and so to recognize that and forgive him and forgive yourself for whatever your stuff is, because we all have stuff. Um, you know, it was probably really helpful for me. And I'll say he – I like to de-emphasize his um, effect on the planet and emphasize my grandmother, who was an incredibly deep thinker, a brilliant writer who who sort of opened – herself and and the minds of people everywhere to um, to being open to the gifts that come the gift from the sea for example her her best selling book um, and that sort of coming of age and dealing with difficulty in life um, she left I think that we had a biographer work on a biography of my grandfather he never finished the book. In fact, he came back and said, I've lost the hero because he was he, – he had human frailties. But I've found the heroine in your, in your grandmother, and she really was an incredible person. So I, th- that's just my sort of long and complex answer of, um, you know, grandfather was amazing, and I've inherited some of that stuff, probably for better and for worse. And, and if, you, if you look at – that person, you gotta forgive them, and you gotta say, "Okay, hero," because you could easily throw tomatoes at them um, for for making mistakes. Um, were they that bad? Okay, it's all in the eye of the beholder, but that's human stuff. It's Joseph Campbell stuff again. Um, but my grandmother was extraordinary and left a legacy for, I think, 
a whole generation in 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 thinking and evolving into a better person. Um, and both of my grandparents did that, and they spent the latter half of their lives working on this ethos of balance between advancing technology and preservation of the environment that that was the biggest legacy that they left for me. So the aviation piece is technical. It's there. Um, and I've fallen back into it accidentally. Um, but that balance piece is more important because it's our life. And, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm in the aviation industry. I'm not a scientist, but most scientists are saying we have anthropogenic climate, climate change happening and there is no dispute that the sea levels are rising and whether or not humans are causing it or not, I believe we need to be resilient. We need to be able to figure out how to change the weather if we're going to habitate on this planet with the number of people that we have consuming the resources we have. We've got to figure something out. And that's the bottom line. I like your message about stewardship of the land. Last question before I let you go. What's your paper airplane game like? <laughs> I could make a pretty mean paper airplane. I think I, I, I won a prize in the fourth grade um, you know, paper airplane contest at Wilkes School. It was a long time ago. You're I know. Ready? I'm not that good anymore. <laughs> you ready to go outside the studio and have a no. little challenge? No, I don't think so. I can do one of those really basic ones, and that's about it. Yeah, I just want to put on my resume that I out, outlasted you in a flight. Uh, I, paper airplanes is my only only chance. I give you that one. I, it's like drones. I can't fly a drone. I, I have one, and I've used it for skiing, and it, it's really hard. The kids can just like, oh, yeah, totally. But it's not like seat of the pants flying at all. Yeah, video games too. Like, I'm, I miss the joystick and the red button. Now it's like 16 buttons, and it's... Too fast. Yeah, we got good at like Defender and Frogger, Donkey Kong at, down at the arcade in Winslow. <laughs> yeah, that's a time that I think a lot of people miss is the old arcade bowling alley around here. Oh, yeah. Which is Island Fitness now. There was a Donkey Kong right outside the ferry waiting area. You know, uh, when you drive down and we, we discovered this was like, don't do this at home. If you taped a piece of floss onto a quarter, you could drop it down in there and yeah, get slug you could get 20 credits before it grabbed it and took it we used to do that with dental floss and scotch tape at the arcade so we got really good at donkey kong because that was the only one that actually worked that or that at that time good rig um hey todd mccullough if, if you're listening out there uh, we need some of your pinball games out at the ferry terminal and bring some donkey kong for eric <laughs> Eric Lindbergh, aviator and artist. I appreciate your time. It was a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Shout out to your lovely wife, Lynn. Um, thanks for coming into The Bystander today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind.